Do you want the title? The first one I'm going to read. I'm writing this from my mother's apartment. It's called Orange. All I could think about was being written into her life story. She made up a story about What was the inspiration for the story? My story is called Cigarettes. What was the genesis? I used to be almost dependent on voice. I want to talk to you. (laughs) And the conversation starts. Hello, and welcome to Off the Page, a podcast of stories, essays, and poetry from the Stanford University writing community. In each episode, a Stanford author will read a piece of their writing and then talk to us about their craft and process. I'm Mark Lebowski, Jones Lecturer in the Creative Writing Program. Rose Whitmore grew up on the San Francisco Peninsula. She graduated from UC Berkeley, played rugby for the US national team, and earned her MFA from the University of New Hampshire. Her writing has appeared in Colorado Review, Alaska Quarterly Review, Iowa Review, Missouri Review, The Sun, Fourth Genre, Mid-American Review, and the California Prose Directory. She is the recipient of a work-study scholarship from the Breadloaf Writers' Conference, a residency from Hedgebrook, and the 2013 Peden Prize from the Missouri Review. You can read more of Rose's work at www.rosewhitmore.com. In this episode of Off the Page, Rose Whitmore will read an essay called Swarm. My father died suddenly on Christmas Day when I was 17, and 15 years later, strangers still call my mother's home asking for him. They've found his old Yellow Pages ad for bee removal, and they leave anxious messages on our machine, narrating tales of swarms that have appeared in their kitchen vents or treehouses. I listen to these messages on my visits home. The caller's voices are threaded with fear. Can you come this afternoon? A swarm just appeared in the honeysuckle by the fence. I have small children. Can you come now? Bees are in the chimney. Bees are in the attic. Their voices are honest and frightened and bare. These people leave their messages for my father as if he were alive. When I hear them, I feel his familiar energy in the room a pleasant chaos, an affinity for adventure. He filled my childhood summers with bee charming and camping trips and sleeping beneath the stars, experiences that gave my brother and me perspective. These strangers' pleas for his help provoke a sharp desire in me to pick up the phone and say that I too wish he could come home to my family's aid for an afternoon, take away the things that frighten us, soothe our rattled nerves, and restore an impossible reality where we are not harboring a secret, unspoken pain. I wish he could return and stop the forward momentum of our lives without him. But he is a ghost, and the call's just reminders of a life we've been forced to abandon. I held a kettle filled with burning chips of cedar and newspaper as my father and I moved quietly around one of our two hives. My job was to use the smoker to calm the bees while my father inspected the progress of the honeycombs. We were dressed in identical beekeeping suits of white canvas. Because I was six, my gloves were too large and had to be duct taped to the sleeves of my shirt, and my pants were tucked into my favorite cowboy boots. It was early morning at our ranch on the central plains of Northern California, where we came for the summers to raise chickens, rabbits, goats, and pigs. Our father would bring my brother and me here during his time off from teaching, and our mother would come up for the weekends and for a few weeks during her vacation. Far from the San Francisco suburbs we called home, the ranch was where I learned the language of sage and rocks and bees. 
We stood at the edge of the hive, the bees buzzing an unmistakable sign of life in this arid, treeless landscape. They flew around us, crawled over the folds in my beekeeping suit, and flexed their wings in the sun. I was thrilled with the gentle way the bees inspected me, and I wondered if they knew me, if they recognized my scent, my voice. My family and I slept under the stars on a deck we'd built not 40 feet from the hives, and the bees and I passed the hours of our days in the same landscape, moving through the pastures of flowers and sage, around the pond where I fed the ducks and geese, and past the barn where star thistle shot up from the dry earth and bloomed in yellow bursts. The ranch was isolated in the dry lands beyond Mount Shasta, the perennially snow-capped peak with its flowing water and lush forests loomed a hundred miles away. At the ranch, there was only sagebrush, the low drone of insects, and the slow rhythm of our days. The sky was giant, the highway a distant dream. There was little water and no electricity. The land was rocky, quartz veined the hills like fault lines. But for all the desolation, there was also beauty. The soft calls of morning doves filled the evenings. The air was sweet, the ground was warm. My family had built everything on our property. The barn, the deck, a shade house with a triangular window that framed Mount Shasta. We plucked rocks from the fields to plant a garden. We were patient with the lack of water and the burden of our chores. Our animals grazed and wandered through the blonde grasses. We had a garden with basil and tomatoes. We slept next to each other under the stars, listening to the coyotes howl. In those summers, our lives had a different order and meaning. When we went home, we boarded the horses, sold the other animals, and left the land and the bees to themselves. My father moved slowly and said in a composed voice, Okay, go ahead. I pressed a lever and smoke poured out of the kettle. I moved it around the hive and held it next to the small window where the workers came and went on their missions around the ranch. I was not afraid. Interacting with the bees this way was the only way to get honey from the hive. My father bent to one knee and removed the lid from the hive. He pulled out a frame filled with honeycomb, which I anointed with more smoke. The bees fell away in a magical hush, and the world was, for a moment, a curious dream of honeybees and the smell of burning cedar. The frames revealed the strange alchemy the bees spun. The honey they made was drawn from elements that offered so little, but came out dark, viscous, smelling sweetly of stage. A few months ago, something caught my eye at work. From my desk, through a narrow window, I saw the glint of thousands of fluttering wings as they fought against currents of the wind. A swarm of bees. I walked to the, to the window and pressed my hands to the pane. It had been years since I'd tended a hive, but the art of bee charming remained in my bones. I lingered for a minute at the window before I was engulfed by a strange and immediate need to stand in the middle of their moving bodies. A small stream flanked with hibiscus and birds of paradise separated my office from the blacktop parking lot, which radiated heat, and also separated me from a magnolia where the energy of the bees was most furious. A woman emerged from an office a few doors down. What is that, she said. The swarm was beginning to form a cluster on a high branch. Bees, I said, and I moved slowly toward the tree. That's a hazard, she said. They're dangerous. What if someone has an allergy? Her knee-jerk reaction struck a deep, almost cellular chord. I've never dismissed the gravity of bee sting allergies, but the predictability of her fear annoyed me, 
the bees were a force of nature, injected into a routine that has largely muted it out. Our roads are smooth, our air conditioning rattles, our honey comes in plastic bears. The power of nature, at least in this small corner of Southern California, has been largely erased in exchange for the neat lines of safety. We've forgotten what it is to be truly human and fragile in the world. I inched closer. Be careful, the woman warned. The rush of wings produced a low, sandpaper hum that was both intimidating and exhilarating. The thrum of a colony of bees is a sound that stays in your blood. It's addicting. Spend time with bees and you may develop a second heartbeat, an unmistakable pulse that is silent and constant. Where did they come from, the woman asked. I don't know, I said. No one knows exactly what causes a colony to abandon its hive and become a swarm. The bees could have followed the flight of a new queen or been forced out by the elements. They could remain in the tree for hours, days, or even months before they resettled. People began to emerge from their dim, cool offices. They squinted in the light, wearing expressions of annoyance, while the bees spun circles in the air, a vortex of agitated gold oblivious to us. A family walked out of the nearby dentist's office and paused before running, heads covered, towards their car. People are allergic, someone insisted. We need to call the landlord. We must take care of the bees immediately. They are a danger. They are a threat. We can't have them here. The bees had dislodged something within me. I wished that I had a beekeeping suit. I fantasized about coming back at night for the colony, taking it home with me, and setting up the bees in a hive in the corner of my yard by the ocean. I imagined their hum filling my chest at night with an old and intimate memory. But that was a dream, soon replaced by an overwhelming indictment, a voice threaded across the years that chastised me for this easy life I led. How I, too, had become someone who ignored the call of the wild, a person who sat in an office and led a life where beekeeping was impossible. My father died from complications of a heart murmur. We did not know it was going to happen, and the aftermath of navigating how to live again was chaotic. Six months after he died, I was a freshman in college and crippled by the sort of grief that most people don't talk about, the sort that doesn't go away but clings to the skin and buries itself in the body. I had briefly entertained postponing college for a year, but when I'd mentioned this plan to my friends, they told me it would be best if I continued on. Beneath their well-intentioned words, I sensed a desire to silence me, a panic at the suggestion of life's unpredictability. My grief, wild, uncontainable, fragile, was something to be feared, to be eliminated. And so I tried to suppress it. I went to college. I wondered at the people around me, their constant striving. I tried, but it lived within me, speaking to me through days, muting the din of college. I became aware of the lengths to which we go to stay sane, comfortable, safe, how we gloss over pain for the same reason we pave roads, to smooth our way. The men and women who lived with me in my co-ed dorm had never met my father. They'd never seen the sun wrap itself along the horizon of our ranch or collect honey from a hive of bees. But still, they advised me on how to handle the memories in my bones. One friend kindly told me to let the dead bury the dead. One day, I walked into the common room of my dorm and saw everyone's name on the dry erase board. As a pseudo-intellectual joke, someone had invited people to write each resident's Freudian issue beside his or her name. Next to mine, an anonymous hand had written the word, Daddy. I stayed at school because I did not know what else to do. 
Somewhere was a place where my father still lived, and I wanted to live there too. I longed futilely for time to stop, a desire that would go on for years. After my first college midterm, I developed a stomach ache that evolved into a searing pain I'd never experienced before. I worried that my appendix had burst. It was the only logical explanation. I decided to ride my kick scooter down the hill to the student health center. I could barely breathe and was so focused on my stomach that I failed to see a sewer grate in the middle of the sidewalk. My narrow front wheel got stuck between the bars of the grate and I went over the handlebars. I hit the pavement with a sickening thwap. Sprawled on that sidewalk in Berkeley, I was tired down to my bones. My father was dead. I wanted to leave college, to drop out, to be alone. I wanted the world to stop spinning and to let me lie there, pressed against the ground. People hovered over me. Instead of um, People hovered over me. Instead of continuing on to the health center, I returned to my dorm, where friends helped me into my loft bed. Those who could not speak the name of the dead, uh, sorry, I've changed that sentence. Those who could not speak to me of death and sadness now stared at my bloody knees and listened to my short breaths, their eyes wide with panic. The mysterious abdominal pain returned again and again. Student health services referred me to specialists, but I delayed scheduling appointments because I wanted to believe that I was fine. Some subconscious part of me knew exactly what the unpredictable pain was. It was my grief incarnate. It was the manifestation of what my friends could not understand, what I could not even say to myself about my life. It was cellular memory, welling at the surface, and I couldn't ignore it. I had to live it. I never went to see a specialist. The ulcers, as I later self-diagnosed them, plagued me through college, always flaring up after stressful events, team tryouts, finals, presentations. Whenever it happened, I would lie down where I was, my breathing shallow, my insides churning. I lay on campus greens and watched the sun pass across the buildings. I lay in people's yards, sat on sidewalks, and slouched in corners of the library. I don't know when the ulcers stopped. I don't know when I accepted the, mo the movement of time. I don't know when I abandoned the hope of recovering what I had lost, but it took years, and it was a battle. It was a battle to let certain pieces of me slip away, to watch them slide through my grasp. After five days, a man arrived at our office complex to remove the bee colony. I went outside to get a closer look at his suit, his transportation equipment, and the swarm, now docile and settled. I asked him where he was taking the bees. I asked him for his card. I asked him how often he saw swarms. He asked me to go inside and close the door. For your safety, he said. I wanted to tell him that I wasn't afraid, that I understood how to handle bees, but I went inside. I couldn't bear to watch anyway. We spent our last summer at the ranch when I was 10, pulling away in August with a truck full of chickens bound for sale. In my teens, we backpacked the Sierras, camped in Baja, and explored the Arctic by canoe. We hunted and fished and felt the pull of the wild. Those were summers of adventure. For many years after my father's death, my mother, my brother, and I could not bear to return to the dry, arid plains of the ranch, perhaps because we didn't want to have the conversations it would require. A decade had passed, the sting of memory lessened, and when we felt whole enough, we returned. We did not stay overnight to sleep under the stars. We could not live that life again, but we visited for an hour just to see what was still there. 
The dirt road held familiar ruts, wide and uneven. Star thistle bloomed bright and defiant in the pastures. The planks of the deck had been eroded by the wind and weather, and sage grew wild, eating at the empty corrals. Bullets fired by an unknown gun riddled the sides of old pickups. Desiccated patches of mud blanketed the path to the barn, their edges curling like the corners of burnt paper. The shade house we'd built and painted, with its giant triangular window framing Mount Shasta, had collapsed into a pile of bleached boards. The hulking tractor sat askew. Toys and feed buckets lay strewn around the yard. Whose hands had last touched this frying pan? What child had left this cracked xylophone? <clears throat> a strange entropy was everywhere I looked. The deterioration of our efforts, everything melting back into a natural order that does not care about memory, an order that will outlive us all. Can you come this afternoon? I walked the familiar path to my hives. I have small children. The, w <laughs> the hives waited for me in a mausoleum of weeds. Can you come now? The boxes, painted by my father, were still white. They were splattered with mud, dormant, the paint worn, the wood weakened. The grasses were high. I felt small. I pulled the top off a hive to find that wasps had invaded and then abandoned it. Midday crickets chirped. A breeze carried the familiar smell of sage. Here, my childhood was yesterday. Here, my father was still alive. He was in the barn, turning planks of redwood in his hands. He was feeding the calves. He tinkered with the generator. He held us close beneath summer storms. He tended these hives in a past I can never recover, this hive I haul in my broken chest. Wherever they went, I hope that my bees still roamed the country. I hope they turned wild and swarmed to the high prairies of the Marble Mountains where wildflowers blanket the pastures. I hope they sensed the hard winter coming. I hope they shed their domestic roots, forgot us, followed their wild instincts, and made it to the sweeter sage of the next valley. After the beekeeper packed up and drove away, I went back outside. A few stragglers circled aimlessly around the parking lot, but the massive colony was gone, taken away in a five-gallon bucket destined for some safe haven. I stood there, arms crossed, bereft in a way I could not articulate. The woman from down the hall came out of her office and stood on the sidewalk by me. Are they gone, she asked. I nodded. She wrapped her arms around her body. Did you ever find out where they came from? I wanted to say that I knew exactly where they came from. They'd come miles, through valleys of lightning and dangerous winds. They'd come from the high plains, where the air is hot and dry, and everything I knew is now a memory of a memory. I wanted to say that they had come from me. But I could not explain the arrival of the bees any more than I could explain what, what it was like to lose a father, a world, without a single word of goodbye. I could not explain the lengths to which we will go to conceal our grief. I could not tell her that we live in a world we have created where we are safe against ourselves. I held my hand to my chest. No, I said. Hi, Rose. Hi. Thank you so much for being with us on Off the Page and sharing your work with us. Um, you are actually the first nonfiction piece we've had on the show, so I'm very excited to talk about nonfiction with you. Um, but you are also a fiction writer. You're a Stegner Fellow in fiction, and you've published both fiction and nonfiction. 
Did you start off as a fiction or nonfiction writer, and how did you make the transition to the other genre? I was getting my MFA at the University of New Hampshire in fiction, and everyone said, oh, you have to take Meredith Hall's memoir class um, as one of your electives. And I I was excited about it, but I was also a little timid because, you know, memoir is an intimidating word to some people. And I really, I thought to myself, what do I have to say about anything? But I, it opened up a whole new world for me in terms of how to think about the page, how to approach the page, scene work, dialogue, memory. Um, I often turn to nonfiction when I'm stuck in my own fiction. So do you know from the beginning if a piece is going to be fiction or nonfiction? Yes, there's a very clear line for me. I and I write to understand emotions, I think, and um, consequence and action. And I think that that carries over to my fictional characters, especially the way they navigate on the page what's going on internally. Um, but for me, it's I, I only write nonfiction about my life and I only write fiction that's completely made up in my head. So this piece, Swarm, could you talk a little about sort of how you started working on it or what the what the impetus was? Yeah, well, the um, I hadn't thought about beekeeping in a really long time. And when the swarm arrived at my office complex in San Diego, it was the event of the century. I mean, it was a huge, masterful wild thing that had just kind of plunked itself down into our very ordinary but beautiful parking lot. And in San Diego, I was in North County, and everything is beautiful there. Everyone is beautiful there. Every every day is sunny and perfect. And there's this certain grading that starts to happen where you're too comfortable and too safe. And I definitely was feeling that in my job. I wasn't complacent in my life, but I wanted more. And the, the arrival of the bees they shook me in a way that I, I still haven't been able to really articulate. I felt, I used the word in my essay, indicted, because I I felt like I had failed in some way to achieve living the life that I had wanted to live. I had an office job. I drove along the beach to and from work. I was, you know, I was, I was gliding along and, and the bees just disrupted something so profound that I, I knew I had to write about it. And it took a really long time for me to figure out why, why I, they they moved me so much. So you didn't automatically make the connection between the appearance of the bees and wanting to write about your father's death. It was more first thinking about the life you were living at the moment, and then it led into writing about writing about grief and yeah. loss. Yeah, I think a lot of my nonfiction circles my father's death just because it it's a dividing line in my life between the person I became and what was. And it just, it it shocked me and it shocks me still. And I think about him every day. Um, And I think about the way that we had to climb out out of that grief, the way we had to climb out of his death and start living again. Well, and I think something that I find so beautiful about this essay is that there are these two sort of parallel themes of the grief for your father and also this theme of, of, of wildness and sort of untethered, undomesticated living. And, and it, it seems as if those two themes kind of play off each other, but they're not, they're not, they don't fit together 
was that something that sort of evolved over the drafting and revising of this essay that those two threads would would be there? Um, I think the way I, I that happened was um, I was writing about the bees and I was thinking about the time in college when I was really sick. I was very, very sick uh, with the ulcers, and I just I couldn't control them. I couldn't control anything about it. They would just hit me, and I realized later I was stressed out and I had to calm down. But I was I felt very alone, and um, every time I had an ulcer attack, I felt like I was going to die. That was the way I actually came into the essay was was more kind of figuring trying to figure out um, how to talk about uh, wildness or untamability. Um, and this falsehood of safety that we all operate under. And the blacktop and the people's reaction to the bees was shocking um, because it was this, this uh, insurgence of this wild thing into our very safe life. We all expect that we're going to be healthy and fine and everything is going to work out, but there are no rules. And I think that's something that I wanted to get across without saying that directly. I think that... One of the challenges of nonfiction is figuring out what to leave in, what to leave out, because real life is sort of endlessly complicated and there's an endless number of contexts we can bring in. And is that something you struggle with in general or in this piece in particular? Yeah, I definitely worried about the disparate elements of this piece coming together and making meaning. And I think one of the things I really like about nonfiction is that you can move in space and time. You can be different people in different scenes. Um, and the way that these disparate elements talk to each other often create meaning. And I really worried about this piece in terms of people being able to draw the parallels. I had a scene in here, and I still have this scene sort of floating around in my world uh, of the ranch. Um, there was a lightning storm, and you know we slept outside on the deck. There was no house. Um, and my dad had pulled a tarp over me and my brother, and the lightning storm was over top of us and I I was so afraid uh, it was it was such a spectacular moment but also I was I thought I was sure we were going to die and the next morning everything was fine and it was beautiful there and it was serene and you couldn't even tell that lightning was you know hitting the ground because it was it was right by us um, and I don't know what to do with that in my life I don't know you know I think nonfiction's challenging because you have these things that you want to say or these moments that you want to share with the world but sometimes they're better just kept inside um, were there other challenges or complexities that came up in the editing and revision process of this piece or when it was ultimately published in The Sun? Um... It was published in 2015, and that feels like 18,000 years ago. Um, <laughs> You're a different writer. I'm then. a different person, yeah. Um, I think, you know, it's funny to approach this this essay uh, now and look back on it um, in Adam's class, Adam Johnson's fiction workshop at the Stegner program, we have to tell stories, the first workshop every year. And I told this story verbally um, from memory. Um, and it was a really interesting experience how I edited out certain things. And I didn't talk about the ulcers, but I talked about the bees coming and, and what that meant to me. And I think I was free in, in that telling to say what I really wanted to say. In this essay, I, I couldn't you know, talk about how unhappy I was at work because my coworkers were going to read it. As I grow older, I get less censored and uh, with my nonfiction, and it's nice. I feel a little bit more brave every time I read an essay. Well, that that really sort of anticipates the next question I was going to ask, which is, is there anxiety about the publication of nonfiction, and does that anxiety inform the writing process? I might be the only person uh, 
well, I might be one of the only people who who has no anxiety about publishing nonfiction. In a way, fiction's way more personal. I don't I don't know how. It's almost like in my essays, I am taking this chunk out of my life and putting it out there, and it never comes back to me. And it feels good to relieve that. I'm not going to call that therapy because I don't think that it is, but um, it's it's a reworking and a and a liberation, I guess. And you mentioned that you'd written uh, a fair amount of nonfiction about your father's death. Uh, has the writing of that over the years uh, sort of informed your relationship to that event? Yeah, I'm a lot easier on myself for how I coped with it. Um, and it was just such a rough time. Um, and I was doing the best I could. And I think that writing about it and reexamining certain things really helped me to do that, to, to find closure. Maybe my last question, Rose, would just be, what are you working on now here as a Stegner fellow? I'm full steam into a first draft of a novel about weightlifting in post-World War II Albania under oh the communist uh, dictator Anvar Hoxha. Um, so that's a big project, and um, I'm, I'm not finished with it. And one of my first meetings with Adam Johnson, he's like, what do you know? What are you working on? And I said, I'm working on a novel and I'm working on a memoir and I'm working on a short story collection. And he's like, no one can possibly do all that. <laughs> and so um, I've sort of refocused on the novel, but I am definitely still working on nonfiction. Wait, now I also want to ask, you also, you, you are an athlete and you started as a, a professional rugby player. What was the path from that to <laughs> writing? Um, I was playing rugby and I... I I uh, was ready for retirement, but I couldn't stop. It was it was sort of a part of my identity, and I was so ingrained in the team and the people and traveling, and I was so broke, and I just couldn't see my way out of it. And I was in Pittsburgh playing for some traveling team, and I dislocated my elbow. And my, so my elbow came out of its socket, and I was on the field, you know, and the trainer was trying to put it back in and I was laying on that field and I was like, oh, I can retire now. Um, and um, I retired and like six weeks later, I had rehabbed my elbow enough that I could pick up a backpack and I left for Spain. I cashed in all my savings and I went to Spain and I walked the Camino de Santiago, which is a pilgrimage in northern Spain. And in the beginning of that pilgrimage, people asked me what I did. Uh, you know, what do you do? And I said, oh, I'm a, you know, I'm a researcher. I worked at UCSF at the time. And um, by the end of the Camino, I was telling them that I was a writer. And I had sort of like, you know, 600 miles later, walked myself into saying like, all right, you've got to go for this. So I enrolled at uh, Kenyatta Community College up the road from Stanford, and I took a fiction class. And uh, I haven't stopped since then. Like, I just keep keep writing and keep learning and um, keep going. So that's... That's literally the path to writing. Literally, just had to, <laughs> yeah, walk across the country. Um, thank you so much, Rose, for being with us on Off the Page and sharing your work and talking about such personal material with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. That's great. This episode was produced by Alessandra Wallner, Maddie Curtis, and our talented team of producers, editors, and coaches. Aaron Wu, Sienna White, Aparna Verma, Yui Lee, Claudia Haymack, Christopher Laboa, Victoria Wan, and Jet Hayward. Thanks to Leland Quarterly for their editorial help, especially Zui Zhao. Thanks to Jonah Willingans for his supervision, and to Ivan Bolin, 
Christina Ablatza and Ose Jackson at the Creative Writing Program. For their generous support to the Stanford Storytelling Project, we'd like to thank the Vice Provost for Undergraduate Education, Stanford Arts, and Bruce Braden.